0: The Nationals are back home and Walters is the place to be. Swing by before the game for a cold one or come afterwards to catch late night NBA playoffs. Head over to waltersdc.com reservations to secure your reservation for this week.
1: Walters is a great option, not only during Nats games, but also to watch Euro 2020
2: matches. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 0-1. Swing and a high drive. Right center field. Schwarber, this one way back. He has got another one. That one is gone over the big wall.
3: And the National League
2: out-of-town scoreboard.
0: With one swing, Kyle Schwarber doubles the lead. It's 6 to nothing. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, June 20th, 2021, part two, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of bassinsports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. This is the happy part of our two show extravaganza for the Nats doubleheader against the Mets on Saturday as we on this installment of the pod post game a 6-2 win over the National League East leading New York Mets at Nationals Park on Saturday evening and Game 2 of a doubleheader, which ends up being a doubleheader split. So the Nats now have won 8 of 11. The Nats now are 32 and 36 on the season. The Nats now are back to being 6 games behind the Mets. And the Nats now have a chance at taking 3 of 4 from the Mets in this series. There is not a Nationals fan on the planet who would not have signed up for that winning 3 of 4 over the Mets in this big game, in this big four-game set. Not going to be easy on Sunday, but it is a possibility of what the Nats did in Game 2 on Saturday.
1: It is, and it's a great position to be in. And what I liked here was that after that lackluster game in the opener of the doubleheader, they came out and looked really good. They hit the ball for power. (laughs) They gave themselves opportunities, and they got the best start of John Lester's season, which could have been better if maybe his manager didn't, Managed with his heart in the seventh inning and put someone else out there and didn't try to trust him to complete the game. But we'll get to that. Uh, This was, for the most part, everything you could have wanted to happen in this game. Really good stuff and a nice response to the way that the first game went to now put themselves in a position where, worst case scenario, they're splitting a four-game series. With the Mets, best-case scenario, they're taking three out of four.
0: Yeah, I mean, given the hole the Nats put themselves in, you really would like to get the three out of four in this series. But a split isn't the end of the world. And uh, it was important to get this win in Game 2 on Saturday. Nats got it. And let's go ahead and get into Lester. He was tremendous in this game. Two runs in six innings ends up being the final line. It really is a shame, though, that it ends up being that because he tossed six scoreless innings before giving up those two runs to begin The top of the seventh, the leadoff first pitch single by Tomas Nito, followed by a two run homer by Jose Peraza. Lester's final line, two run six innings, six strikeouts versus seven hits, but no walks on 100 pitches. Now, to the point of Lester beginning that top of the seventh inning, you know, it was so interesting watching this game because, unlike everyone else, I'm sure watching it, you're wondering, okay, how long is Davey going to stick with John Lester? We have had the conversation about Davey wanting to perhaps push Lester more in some of these starts. Davy stuck with Lester throughout this game. I mean, interestingly, allowed Lester to bat with runners on second and third and one out in the bottom of the fourth. Lester struck out on five pitches, but the next batter, the fellow former ex-Cub Kyle Schwarber, hitting a three-run homer for a six-nothing Nats lead. Davy then allowing Lester to bat in the bottom of the sixth, during which he popped out for the second out. Lester comes out for that top of the seventh, uh, ends up looking shot. Davy pulls Lester. Then things get a little dicey. But what were you thinking in real time as Davy is continuing to let Lester to bat and then has him back out there for that top of the seventh inning?
1: Yeah. So let's start with the latter one the batting in the sixth and letting him pitch in the seventh. And I'll get to the one in the fourth because that's an interesting story, too, and a fun story as it turned out. Now, I made the mistake when he walked off the mound at the end of the top of the sixth, his pitch count at 95, standing ovation from the crowd. And I looked it up and I said, and I tweeted, would you believe John Lester in 10 starts with the Nationals now has a 3.60 ERA? I would not have guessed that. If you would asked me, what is John Lester's ERA? I probably would have said something in the fours, maybe even the high fours. No, it was 3.60 in 10 starts. Like, wow, how did that happen? He has really turned it on here. And I know he puts runners on base, but he's coming through in big spots, getting outs when he needs to and making it work. And he's giving his team a chance to win now. He finally got his first win uh because he got some run support at last and he pitched deep enough in the game where they were in the lead when he departed. But I had no reason to think that he was going to come back out for the seventh. No reason at all. And that's why I tweeted what I did. So all of a sudden I looked down from the press box and look who's standing in the on-deck circle. It's John Lester. I'm thinking, what's going on here? Is he really going to leave him in the game? Sure enough, he did. And he takes the mound for the seventh and it only lasted two batters, single, two-run homer, and he's out. And now his ERA is 3.96. And that just doesn't sound as good, does it? <laughs> versus 3.60. So again, in real time, I'm putting it all on the manager for doing this. Now, after the fact, we find out some more context. And here's what the context was. When the sixth inning ended, John Lester goes back to the dugout and says to Davey, I can finish this. Let me finish this. He really wanted it. Okay. He hasn't been in that position in a long time. He hadn't gone seven innings since 2019. This would have been a complete game officially because it's seven innings. So, I mean, he hasn't had a chance to do something like that in a long time. And I think Davey maybe let his emotions and let his heart get the best of him there and trusted a guy who he's known for a long time and has done great things for him and his teams. But to me, there was really no reason to try to push that. You got a great start out of him, 95 pitches. You need one more inning out of your bullpen. You got a six-run lead. Don't need to mess around at all. Let Swero start the inning clean. Easy peasy. And instead he let him do it. And what wound up happening? Swero has to come in after Lester gives up the home run. He ends up putting a couple runners on base, gets a couple outs. And now, because it's officially a save situation Al in a four-run game, it's a save situation because the tying runner is on deck. And so here comes Brad Hand to close it out and get his 14th save on one pitch in a game that they led 6-0 going into the final inning. And there was never any reason for even to have to warm up.
0: The save is such a stupid stat. I almost never <laughs> cite it anymore. ERA, WHIP, ERA+, FIP. There are a million other things to look at. The save is so ridiculous. And even worse than the save is the hold. If you ever look at who gets credit for a hold in a game, you want to drive yourself nuts with that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it was comical to see Han do that. To me, though, that was one of the shames of the game. It was a shame that Lester ended up giving up the two runs. It was also a shame that you had to use two relievers to close out a game in which you entered the final inning up 6-0. You know, when we talk about the bullpen being overused, it's games like this that really harm you, where you have no business, you know, if not going to your bullpen, then at the very least only having to go to one guy. And until you have to go to two guys, you have to warm up Brad Hand. Yeah, he only throws to one pitch, but you still had to get him warm. And uh, I, I just, that annoyed me that they had to go to Hand to get, you know, like, you can't Suero just close out a freaking 6-2 game? I mean, is it that difficult? And he couldn't do that in that seventh inning. But going back to Lester, man, it is so... Look, because they win, it's fun. If they don't win, it's not so much fun. But every game, he does this. He puts so many guys on base, but he escapes these innings. It's incredible. Now, he actually started off the game in fine fashion, retired the first seven batters he faced, perfect top of the first, struck out Francisco Lindor and James McCann for the last two outs. But then you look at like what he did over the course of the rest of the outing. Scoreless top of the third, despite giving up a one-out double to Albert Almora. Scoreless top of the fourth, despite giving up back-to-back one-out singles to McCann and Pete Alonso. Scoreless top of the sixth, despite giving up a one-out single to Lindor, followed by a one-out double by McCann. So the Mets had runners on second and third and one-out but didn't score. I mean, stealing a page from the Nationals playbook in that inning, Lester striking out Kevin Pillar on five pitches for the third out, thanks in part to maybe, maybe, the single most generous called strike three this baseball season by the home plate umpire C.B. Buckner. To anyone who watched the game, if you rewatch that strike three, if you just go look it up where that ball actually was, that's one of the worst calls I think I've ever seen. That called strike three on Pilar. Pilar was livid after that plate appearance. He had every reason to be upset. That was an atrocious call by Buckner.
1: It was, and the amazing thing, it was maybe the start of that inning or the inning before a couple of us in the press box had noted that C.B. Buckner was umpiring the plate, and we hadn't mentioned his name once in this <laughs> game. That doesn't usually happen when C.B. Oh. is behind the plate. And then, sure enough, he made his presence felt with that call. That was pretty egregious. It was... John Lester wasn't complaining about it, of course, after the fact. But, you know, that was his sixth strikeout of the game. That's the most he's had this season. So, I mean, and he wasn't just getting called strikes. He was getting swinging strikes in a lot of ways. So, I mean, this was really a good outing for him. But again, that's why, because he did have to exert himself and because that last inning was so kind of dicey, that's why I thought, oh, of course he's coming out of the game. There's no reason to bring him back after that. That wasn't the case, of course. But, if he can just keep doing this and, you know, he's not going to be the blow you away John Lester from the past where you're counting on seven, eight innings every time he takes them out, but that's okay. They just need him to give him a chance, give him five or six good innings with a chance. And that's enough. That's all they were asking for him this season. And so he actually more often than not has been able to do that. And it's not always the prettiest thing, but he gets the job done. And like I said, if not for that Decision to put him back out there in the seventh, he'd be sitting right now with a 3.60 ERA. How can you complain about that?
0: You can't. And honestly, I don't even complain about a 396 ERA. I mean, if he finishes a season with an ERA under four, especially given how bad he was the last two seasons with the Cubs, you take that and you run with it. You know, the whip remains high, 144, but like we keep saying, he's got this knack for escaping these innings without giving up damage. And I, I would say this to Davey sticking with Lester you as a manager have got to be ruthless, okay? You just have to be. And I I know it's easy for me to say that. It's harder for someone like Dave who's actually in the position to do that. But, you know, in a game like this, okay, it's, I guess, forgivable. But, you know, there's some appropriateness to this with the Nationals facing the Mets because one of the most famous recent instances of a manager going with his heart and not his head and that crushing the team was Terry Collins with the Mets in Game 5 of the 2015 World Series, sticking with Matt Harvey Because Matt Harvey insisted on going back out there for the ninth inning. And he goes back out there, even though the data screamed that past 100 pitches, Harvey was a totally different pitcher. And sure enough, Harvey gets got. The Mets end up losing that game, end up losing that series. This began with a long conversation
2: between Dan Worthen, the pitching coach, and Terry Collins. Worthen's delivering the bad
0: news. Oh, I'm going to go talk to the boss about this. No way. You know, would they have won that series anyway? No, probably not. But that's not the point. You've got to be ruthless as a manager. You have to have your principles and you stick to them. And you can't allow yourself to be talked into things, especially, by the way, by a guy in Leicester who's well past his peak. Now, look, this is game two of a doubleheader on June 19th. So I don't think anyone's going nuts over this. This is not game five of a World Series. But in bigger spots later in the season, an outing like this needs to be remembered. You have your things that you stick to, your tenets that you abide by and you don't abandon those just because you know John Lester and he comes pleading to you in the dugout and if John's mad at you I don't care and Davey shouldn't care. Davey's the manager. And Davey's a manager now with a nice contract. So Davey's got some some ethos behind him. Go ahead, stick to your guns and if Lester complains the next time you say, "Hey John John, you remember what happened on June 19th when I stuck by you and you gave up the two runs? This is why I'm pulling you in this game." I hope this is a lesson learned for Davey moving forward this season, especially with a guy like Lester.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you on all of that. And in my experience, when a starting pitcher is upset that he's been pulled in the moment and might, you know, show him in the dugout kind of grumbling and, and not looking real happy about it, usually by the end of the night, provided the team has won the game, they forget about it. All's good. It's happened with Max Scherzer. It's happened with Steven Strasburg. It's happened with everyone. So, uh, yeah, you have to know in the heat of the moment to take charge. You are the man in charge. They are not the person in charge to make that decision. There's a reason you're being paid to make those decisions, and they're not. And you live with it, and ultimately, especially if you have the respect of the pitcher, and I know that Davey Martinez has the respect of John Lester. That's not to be questioned. They've been together for a long time, Chicago and D.C. I think it would have been fine. Lester maybe would have been disappointed But once the game was over, he would have been more than happy with the way it worked out. And uh, you're right. I hope it is a lesson. It's too bad that that is still a lesson that needs to be learned sometimes.
0: All right. Well, Lester overall was good. No question about that. Brad Hand gets his save off throwing one pitch, which is a great way to make a living. (music) All right. So we have all had that dream. Tie game, bottom of the ninth base is loaded. Well, on FanDuel Sportsbook, you get more than just one shot to swing for the fences. That's because FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free. You heard that right. New users get up to $1,000 back in side credit if your first bet doesn't win. And it only gets better from there. Once you have an account, you'll have access to same-game parlay insurance all season long. That's up to $25 back in side credit each day if your same game parlay bet falls one leg short. This way you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. It's got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same game parlay and always on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. All you have to do is download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code CHAT to get in on the action. That's FanDuel Sportsbook. Promo code chat and games on Sunday afternoon include Toronto at Baltimore at 105 starting for the American League Worst Orioles. It's Matt Harvey. He starts every fifth game for the O's. And so every fifth game for the O's, I recommend you go the other way. He has an ERA on the season of 776. He has an ERA over his last seven starts of 1409. The Blue Jays, yes, are the play.
2: 21 plus and present in present, Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager only for risk free bet. Refund issued as is non withdrawable site. Credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at com. Gambling problem, call 1 100 522 in Colorado. 1 100 bets off in Iowa. 109 with it Indiana 1027071117 for confidential help in Michigan 100 gambler New Jersey Pennsylvania Illinois Virginia Tennessee 1-800-889-9789. or in West Virginia visit www.100gambler.net We're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with Indeed Here it comes. Swing a long drive left field. Turner gets into this one. Back goes Drury at the wall, and it is gone. Home run number 11 for Trey Turner. Drops that
0: one into the Mets' bullpen. And it's now the Nationals 2 and the Mets nothing. The Nationals' offense was alive in game two of this doubleheader split on Saturday. Six runs on ten hits and a walk. It's funny, they lose a game in which they get seven walks. They win the game in which they get one walk, but of course, there's more to offense than just that. Two for five with runners in scoring position, and the 10 hits weren't just a bunch of singles, okay? This was not a Starling Castro specialty from the Nats offense in game two. Three homers. That's what you love to see. Two doubles and five singles, and two of the three homers coming from the same guy and Kyle Schwarber. I don't know if the numbers back this up, but it sure seems to be the case. When John Lester starts, Kyle Schwarber does good things. The two former Cubs seem to be in cahoots in that way. Schwarber remains the every-game leadoff guy. This certainly seems to be the thing now. The Kyle Schwarber game in, game out is the number one batter. Two more Schwarber bombs on Saturday evening. A leadoff bomb. a bomb to maybe end all bombs from Kyle this season. What a shot that was. Bottom of the first leadoff homer from Schwarber to center field. The home run per Statcast going a projected 443 feet. The second homer, a bigger homer in terms of the run scored, not in terms of distance, but the second homer, a two-out, three-run homer. Huge homer and uh, that Nationals 4-1 fourth inning to right center field, putting the Nats up 6 nothing. You felt great about the game, obviously, at that point. Uh, that homer per Statcast cast going a projected 398 feet. Uh, Mark, I mean, at this point, Kyle Schwarber is the every-game leadoff guy, right? How do you take him out of that spot?
1: Yeah, especially the fact that the team has I think won all but one game that he's led off at this point. Maybe they've lost two, I can't remember. But you're right, the numbers do show that he does this when John Lester pitches. Yeah. This is now 5 home runs for Schwarber during Lester's 10 starts this year. Wow, 28 <laughs> times he's homered when Lester starts during their respective careers. So yes, there is something to this for whatever reason. There is definitely something to this. The first one, I agree, that was impressive. That was, you said center field. It's really left center field. And that landed, if people know Nationals Park, you have the red seats that used to be called the red porch that are just to the left of center field. And then behind that are the picnic tables for the little restaurant behind it. This one reached the picnic tables, okay? Okay. There have been only a handful of homers that have gone back there to begin with in the history of this ballpark. And as far as I can remember, they all or certainly almost all of them have been hit by right-handed hitters. I don't know if I can remember a lefty putting a ball there in a game. So that tells you something right there. Left-handed, essentially opposite field, 440-something feet. So that gets everything off to a good start with the leadoff homer. And then the second one and the fourth thing, here's the the story I was going to tell you. So They've got one run already in on the Starlin-Castro double. They now have two on, nobody out. Victor Robles strikes out, and now the pitcher spots up. Okay, It's the bottom of the fourth. They're up 3 nothing. Again, nine-inning game, you're not even thinking you need to do anything here. But in a seven-inning game, you're thinking, well, maybe we should try to take advantage of the spot, go for the kill, and send up Ryan Zimmerman to pinch hit here. And he doesn't do that. He lets Lester hit for himself. Lester's not a good hitter, as we know. He ends up striking out. Well— in the dugout, as that's all playing out, Kyle Schwarber says to Davey, go ahead and let him hit. Let him stay in this game, keep pitching. If he strikes out, I'll pick him up. And What happened? He picked him up with a three-run homer. So there is something. I don't know what this is, but there is some kind of cosmic connection between Kyle Schwarber and John Lester. They help each other out. They bring out the best in each other. They did it for years in Chicago. Cubs fans will tell you this, and now Nationals fans are starting to see that there is something to that combo.
0: That's a pretty cool thing. The Lester Schwarber Cavorka is working in favor of the Nationals so far this season. Been great to see that. And then the other National who homered on Saturday evening, believe it or not, Trey Turner. Yes, he is allowed to hit home runs, contrary to popular opinion. And he went deep, finally, for the first time in a long time on Saturday evening. A terrific two-out solo homer on a shot to left field in the bottom of the third. The home run... Trey Turner's first since the Nats' 7-3 loss at the Cubs. Boy, the Cubs are coming up a lot. Since May 17th, this game was played on June 19th. In more than a month, we had not had Trey Turner hit a home run. He finally hits a home run in this game. Now, what's interesting is that this home run from Turner at the Cubs, people may remember this, that was a moonshot. That was a shot that nearly left Wrigley Field in that game. Turner comes back. Hits a home run finally in this game. Also has himself a single in the bottom of the first. So of having three hits in game one, he has two hits in the nightcap, including finally, and Mark, we've been begging for this, finally a home run for Trey Turner.
1: Yeah, and uh, we've referenced this uh, a few days ago, that at that point, Trey Turner had 10 homers in like 38 games for the team, 37 games for the team. He was on pace for like 42, 43 for the season. All of a sudden he was down to like 26 that he was on pace for without going, you know, a month without hitting one. So that felt good for him. As he said, he finally took advantage of a mistake from an opposing pitcher. He feels like, number one, he hasn't gotten that many mistakes to take a whack at. And when he has, he's either fouled it off or he's missed it. He hasn't done what he's supposed to do with it. So his eyes lit up when he finally saw a pitch over the plate that he could handle. And that capped a really nice day for him. I know they didn't uh, score a lot, didn't matter in the first game. But you put these two together, at that time of the homer, he's five for six with a double and a homer. He ends up five for seven in the double header. Very important. They have to have Trey Turner. They have to have Juan Soto if this team is going to win games. I know they've managed to win some games without those two providing big hits. In the long run, it's going to have to come from those two, especially the power. They've got to get power from those two. So that, I thought, was a really significant moment for him. He can breathe a sigh of relief. He is able to hit a home run again, and maybe now they'll start
0: coming in bunches. I think they will. I feel like that's always how this happens. A guy like Turner, who's so good, has this lengthy drought, breaks the drought, and then will catch fire. Here's what's also kind of odd, too. That aforementioned Homer for Trey at the Cubs on May 17th, that was a two-out solo shot in the top of the third. This Homer on Saturday evening was a two-out solo shot in the bottom of the third. That game on May 17th started by John Lester. This game Saturday evening started by John Lester. So as the great Mel Allen would say, hey, how about that? Uh, Some interesting parallels between the last two homers there for Trey Turner. Juan Soto had himself a couple of hits in the nightcap as well. Two more singles. I mean, again, it's a bunch of singles right now for Juan Soto. That's concerning, but he is hitting singles. He is getting on base. Like I think we should acknowledge that. Two-out single on a one-two pitch, bottom of the third leadoff single, in the bottom of the fifth, but also for Soto in this game. And I saw you note this, and it really is amazing. Another double play for Soto. This time it's a 1-6-3 double play for the first two outs in the bottom of the first. He has now equaled his double play total for all of the 2019 season. That is remarkable when you think about that. It is crazy. And, I mean, 11
1: double plays in 68 games. That's a lot. And he missed some time with an injury, so he hasn't even played in all 68 And it just shows you how much he's hitting the ball on the ground, especially to the pull side. And they're usually hard hit, which leads to more double plays. You know, the soft ground balls, it's hard to turn to. He's hitting them right at the second baseman, right at the shortstop, right at the pitcher in this case. And it has been agonizing to watch at times. Now, I mean, I suppose the the positives here are he is hitting it hard. He is hitting singles. He is drawing his walks. It feels like it's just a small thing that if he can start elevating the ball, It's going to leave the park and he's going to start hitting doubles and homers and everything will be fine. But I mean, we're going on a couple of months now where this has kind of been the case. And I don't know why it is. I don't know if it's mechanics. I don't know if somehow his shoulder is still bothering him and preventing him from hitting for power, but he is pounding the ball into the ground and it is costing them in a lot of spots. He is not the real Juan Soto and he really has not been for a while. There were a couple of games there we thought he was breaking out. That's a thing of the past. He is not there again yet. He's got a ways to go to find that swing.
0: Yeah, we said Juan Soto's back, and I think he was back for a little while, but now he needs to get back to being back because he's back to just hitting a bunch of singles. Did make a nice defensive play in Game 2. He has been good defensively. Juan Soto took a big step back defensively last season in left field. Didn't know what to expect from him this season in the more difficult right field. He's done a good job there. Good-looking sliding forward catch and shallow right center to Rob Francisco Lindorva hit for the first out in the top of the fourth. Nats did have two doubles in the nightcap as well. Starling Castro, who is back off the restricted list. Nice to see that. He didn't start game one of the series, but he started both games of the doubleheader on Saturday. Had himself another double uh, in game two of this doubleheader. I, I don't know. Did, did someone tell him it was extra innings? But he had an RBI double, Castro did, in that Nats 4-1 four fourth. And he made another one of those nice pick plays. We saw him do this a few games back, but good-looking pick of a short-hop grounder off the bat at Jonathan Villar for the first out in the top of the sixth. And Josh Bell had a uh, a two-out double in the bottom of the first uh, in the game as well. So, you know, look, I, I, I was thinking about this. Nats have a good offensive game in game two of this doubleheader. I was trying to say to myself, okay, when's the last time the Nats have two consecutive good offensive games? Because we've seen this. Like, they'll have one game where they actually hit well, and then they go right back to being bad. And as best as I can remember and just sort of looking through the games, you got to go back to the two wins at the Braves, June 1st and 2nd. June 1st and 2nd. For the last time, the Nats had two consecutive games in which the offense reasonably was good. Like, that's how infrequent this has been this season. This is what we're hoping for on Sunday, that the Nationals can piece together a second consecutive quality offensive performance. It's not going to be easy, though. They're facing a guy in Taiwan Walker of the Mets who has been excellent so far this year. All the talks about Jacob deGrom, and understandably so, but understand that Taiwan Walker over 12 starts has an ERA of 212, has an ERA plus of 183. A Nationals team that in this season has been humbled by the likes of Joey Lucchese and David Peterson, two guys, each of whom had ERAs plus five. Uh, you shudder to think what could happen against Taiwan Walker on Sunday afternoon.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's any guarantee of anything good happening there. You hope that they can keep something going. Maybe Schwarber leading off helps get him an early lead. Maybe Trey Turner off a really nice doubleheader day can keep the, it rolling. Uh, I'll be curious, does Bell start it first against the righty? Does Zim get a chance to start after not starting either game of the doubleheader? They got to put their best foot out there and hope that it is enough and then hope that Patrick Corbin pitches well and puts him in position to win. But I agree there have been so few times this year that they have sustained offensive success game to game. Now they've won games in a row, but it's usually because of their pitching where they'll win that next game two nothing or three to one or one to nothing even at times. So I would say, just like we've said so many times score first, set the tone for the game, give Corbin a lead to work with, and then hope that you can string together some more hits and important moments and hit for some power. You know, the, the weather's heating up, especially today, It was warm. It was sticky. It's It was hitting weather, power-hitting weather. We've seen it consistently over the years that there are many times that the Nationals don't really hit that well early in the season, and then once the summer hits, it all kind of comes together. It's time for that to happen. There needs to be some evidence of that. There's no reason that a lineup with some of these names in it cannot start driving the ball in the air and take advantage of the warm weather. We'll see. Maybe it'll happen on Sunday on a warm Father's Day.
0: That's yeah, a good point uh, about the weather, and we'll see what Patrick Corbin provides. He is coming off his best start of the season, one run, eight in the third inning, seven strikeouts in that 8-1 win over the Pirates at Nationals Park this past Tuesday night. But of course, that game was against the Pirates. So, you know, this will be a different animal uh, Corbin is facing on Sunday afternoon in the first place New York Mets. Uh, we have gotten a lot of great feedback to a conversation we recently had on the Nats Chat podcast with Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. If you have not heard the interview, we would highly encourage you to listen to the interview. Bob was outstanding. But we've gotten a lot of nice emails about the interview. So we did want to say thank you to Larry Cohen for his nice email, Pastor Mike Yoho for his nice email. And I wanted to read real quick uh, this email portion of it anyway from Joel Charney, who wrote the following to us. You can always uh, email us here at the Nats Chat Podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com, writes Joel the what-ifs with the Negro Leagues are painful. Here is Bill James from his new historical baseball abstract on Josh Gibson. Probably the greatest catcher in baseball history and probably the greatest right-handed power hitter. Bill Vex said that Gibson was the greatest hitter he ever saw. So did countless other Negro League participants and observers. Gibson was strong in all parts of his body, short, powerful arms, huge wrists, massive round shoulders. He was a disciplined hitter with enormous self-confidence He could pick up a curve the moment it left the pitcher's hand, could hit it 500 feet if he could reach it or let it go by if he couldn't. His defensive skills were good. He was quick, had soft hands and could throw. His career was not exceptionally long, but I believe that he would have hit over 500 home runs had he played in the majors, 150 more than any other catcher. And continues, Joel, and this guy died at the age of 35 without ever playing in the majors. It's a crime. You know, we talked about this with Bob and, you know, not to like make everyone sad or anything, but the what ifs really are incredible when you think about them. And like for all the talk about, you know, like all these great all time catches, right? Like jo- uh, Johnny Bench and Yogi Berra and there have been so many others. It may well be that Josh Gibson is the single greatest catcher and maybe the single best hitter ever. We just will never know the answer to that. Yeah,
1: it is sad. And and listening to the way Bob described it to us, that that was the thought I had, just the, the what if. How could we ever know? And and who knows what these people's lives might have been, not just their careers, what their lives might have been if they had been allowed to play in the major leagues alongside the rest of the best players that we've ever seen in this sport. You know, would the name Josh Gibson just have a different, you know, the, the name Babe Ruth, you don't have to be a baseball fan. You know instantly who that is and what he meant in American history. And maybe Josh Gibson should be said in the same sentence and should mean the same thing to all Americans. And sadly, a vast majority of Americans would not really know who that was or understand the significance of it. I'll admit, I didn't really appreciate everything about him until we started doing some research for that interview and then hearing more of the stories from Bob. And it's why I do think it's important that we don't forget about this, that we do hear these stories from those who were there, and there aren't many of them left, and from those who followed it and analyzed it over their lives and made it their lives work because it's really, really important we don't forget what happened in that chapter of American baseball history because it is both sad and also inspiring to see what some of these guys did under some conditions that were not fair.
0: Well, and that's the thing, too. Gibson did what he did despite being a second class citizen in his country like it's hard enough to be a good player but to be a good player when you know you're being called the n-word and you're having to live life the way people like him had to live life back then like imagine if he lived life like a white person back then like what impact would that have had on his numbers you know and obviously we'll never know the answer on something like that so anyway if you're in a baseball history certainly if you're into DC baseball history Homestead Grays Josh Gibson Check out our chat with Bob Kendrick. And thank you again to everyone for all the nice words about that chat. Uh, that was all Bob Kendrick. Uh, he was awesome. You can always reach us via email, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet us too. Uh, lots of great tweets that we get from you guys. Definitely want to follow uh, us uh, at the Nats chat Pod during games. Lots of good stuff during games. At Nats underscore chat is how you can find us on Twitter. Nats chat Podcast t-shirts remain available. You can find those at natschatpodcast.square Dot site. That's NatsChatPodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on NatsChat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the NatsChat Podcast. Now the pitch of the way. Swing a ground
2: ball to third. Cash to his left, has it. The short way to Garcia at second. And a curly W's in the books. Brad Hand comes in and throws one pitch to get save number 14,